0: Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services or to listen to other talks, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Today we are continuing our sermon series on Luke. Slightly different kind of talk today. Uh, Less stories and jokes, I'm afraid to say. Uh, Rather than looking at one particular passage, don't boo. um, um, We're looking at one of the overarching themes Throughout the Gospel of Luke, I'm going to start by reading a couple of passages. See as I read them if you can guess what the theme might be. We're going to start in Luke chapter 8 and read the first three verses. It'll be on the screen for you to follow along. Uh, This is what Luke writes. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chuza, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now down to Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened a home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? My sister has left me to do the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, why are we looking at these passages? How are we linked? Can you guess the theme? Uh, Well, to the first readers of these words, actually, these verses are quite revolutionary. Uh, More than that, they're quite subversive toward the culture of the day. Uh, And what I want to do is use these words as a springboard, really, uh, to grapple with one of the bigger questions people sometimes ask about the Christian faith, uh, which is this. Isn't Christianity oppressive to women? Isn't the church historically a place where women are marginalized, sidelined, and oppressed? what on earth is good news about the kingdom of Jesus for women Uh, now before we get into this topic I just want to start by addressing uh, the elephant in the room and that is me I am the elephant Uh, I am the big fat middle-aged male elephant Um, why am I a guy talking on this Uh, I've got no experience of being a woman or being uh, oppressed as a woman like what qualifies me Uh, to speak on a subject like this and i want to say a couple of things on that at at the outset Uh, first thing um, i want to acknowledge i do indeed feel very unqualified to speak on a subject like this i feel there are a gazillion people in the world who could do a better job Uh, but also as i was thinking about that question i was reminded of an anecdote uh, from a guy called john stott Uh, he was a brilliant preacher uh, based in a large anglican church uh, called all souls langham place in central london Uh, he died many years ago now he was single throughout his life just a remarkable example and towards the end of his life, he was preaching one Sunday in All Souls Langham Place on the subject of marriage. And at the end of the sermon, a kind of irate parishioner comes up to him and says, uh, Mr. Stott, uh, what qualifies you to speak on the subject of marriage, given you have no experience of what it is to be married? Who are you to speak on marriage? Uh, and John Stott, who is a fine English gentleman, uh, thought for a moment and he said, Well, he said, uh, I've often taught on what the Bible says about death without ever having personally experienced death. Uh, in the same way, I feel qualified to speak on what the Bible says about marriage without any personal experience of it. Boom, Mr. Stott. Uh, in the same way, uh, as we grapple with the subject, my job is not to talk from my personal experience. is to take the life in the Bible and apply it to our lives. And when you look through Luke's Gospel, which is what we're doing this year, you kind of have to tackle this subject. Because actually, it's one of the key themes of Luke's gospel, the empowerment and dignity given to women. Uh, one of the things that Luke does repeatedly in his gospel that you can like, very easily overlook is he will often tell stories that pair up a man and a woman. He does this over and over. A few examples coming up on the screen. Uh, chapter one, we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, chapter two, we've covered this. Uh, Simeon and Anna, uh, these two old people like waiting in the temple for the promised Messiah, a man and a woman. Uh, Luke chapter 4, Luke is quoting Jesus, telling a story about the inclusivity of the kingdom of God. And he uses two Old Testament examples from one and two kings. Naaman, the leper, the Syrian, and the widow of Zarephath, a man and a woman. Jesus does this again, actually, in Luke 11, uh, Luke quotes, where he quotes Jonah and the queen of Sheba in the very same verse. Luke actually does this 27 times in total in his gospel, including in Luke chapter 8 whole load of guys the 12 are following Jesus around and a whole load of women as well it's like he's making this point again and again and again what's the point the point is this that whoever this guy Jesus is and whatever his message of the kingdom of God if it's good news it is good news for women as well as men and this is actually a really important message that our world needs to hear today We'll get to some of that a bit later on, but I don't know whether you've noticed, uh, our world today tends to treat men and women differently. You ever noticed that? Around about 20 years ago on Channel 4, uh, there was a a documentary uh, called Cutting Edge where they took around about 10 boys, uh, all about 10 years old, and they put them in a home unsupervised for a week and they wanted to see what would happen. There's a picture of this coming up on the screen. They did then the same with ten girls, again, all about ten years old, and they left them unsupervised for a week and wanted to see what would happen. Now, it's worth saying they gave them a little bit of training, like a cooking course, things like that. Uh, The homes they put them in were beautifully furnished. Uh, They gave them a bit of paint to kind of decorate the walls and make it more, more homely. But rather than me tell you what happened, I'm going to show you what happened. Uh, this is a 90 second clip. Uh, we're going to start with the girls, see if you notice any difference when we get to the boys. Let's play the video now. We should a fashion show. That's cool. I know. My mum's going to be appalled when she sees what I've done. It's going to be like, oh, I let you go on TV and now look at the stadium. Sade tries to make okay. Kate. Don't eat, that. Don't eat, Don't that. eat it, I will. That make you ill. Sherry takes charge of the cooking and prepares their first meal. Um, onions, I'm not too keen on onions. It's okay, I won't put too many in there, okay? Bolognese. Well, Thanks for
1: getting this tea ready. That's Can I have it. some more? Yeah. Do you want some more?
0: Can Can uh, I have some not No. Not no. As Sherry continues to clear up, Nikki and Jessica organise a fashion show. <laughs> well, <laughs> By the evening, the mess they'd made was already bothering them. We never expected it to be like that, but I'm really upset that we had, like, trashed it so badly. We were trying to explore everything at once, weren't we? Yeah, I know. We got too carried away in ourselves. Are those walls just really bugging me? What they do with it? just really... There still hasn't been an organised meal, and sugar has been the main source of sustenance. Mm, it's an Eskimo. futile attempts at cleaning the walls are still going on. Do a bit more later, we need to let it dry. Yeah, i totally I'm, I'm getting my boy! Everyone had completed a cooking course before the week began, though at this stage, you wouldn't know it. By the evening of the third day, the group had divided into two gangs. Um. I think we need a moment to pass to the parents of boys in the room. Dawson's rushed and they're like, that's exactly what it's like. Well, come for prayer at the end, guys, okay? The, the Behenskis don't count. Your, your boys are reading Tolstoy, okay? It doesn't, it does, doesn't count. Um, now, uh, here's the point I want to make um, we, we chuckle at the differences today. Like, we think that, that's quite funny. It wasn't always such a laugh. Uh, and the reason we can chuckle today is because a seismic cultural shift that happened around about 2000. Years ago. Uh, quick book plug here uh, called Who Is This Man? Written by a guy called John Ortberg, brilliant speaker and author. Uh, credit to him for the best bits in this talk. If it's good, it's his work. If it's bad, it's probably uh, my work. Uh, but one of the things he says is this, like whatever you think of Jesus, like maybe um, there are one or two here and you're still working out Jesus. Like, is he God or not? I, I don't really know. Well, he says, if it helps you, put that to one side for a moment. As a matter of historical record, this is just history, The world changed in this area because of Jesus, and we are still living in the good of the revolution he inaugurated 2,000 years ago. You see, the world that Jesus grew up in was very different from the world we live in today. Uh, In the Greco-Roman world, there was a huge disparity between the number of women and men. Uh, For every 140 men, there were only about 100 women. When you multiply that, there's a huge difference. What happened to all the women? Uh, Little girls were largely left to die because they were deemed less valuable than little boys. And this was widely accepted. Uh, In around about the year that Jesus was born, uh, we actually have the copy of a letter, a picture of it coming up on the screen. Uh, This this is written by a guy called Hilarion to his pregnant wife, Alice. Uh, They have one child already, a boy, and she's pregnant and he's away. And in the middle of this letter, he writes this, I beg you to take care of our baby son, the one that's already alive, if you are delivered of a child while I am away, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. And what's interesting about this letter is much of it is just very tender. It's very loving. It's very, it's very gentle. And yet in the midst of it, there's this like throwaway line. Oh, by the way, if you have a girl, get rid, will you? And uh, this wasn't covered up. This was widely accepted. Uh, in ancient Rome, there was a law in place called the Law of Romulus. Uh, which basically legally obliges you to care for every boy that you had. You need soldiers for the army, but only the firstborn girl. Uh, in the ancient city of Delphi, a picture of Delphi coming up, uh, the ruins of it at least, of the 600 families we know live there, only six, that is 1%, uh, we have record of raising more than one girl. 1%. What happened to all the other girls? We can safely assume that they were left to die. This is the world that Jesus was born into, and he is going to change everything in this area. A little story to help us feel this uh, differently. A number of years ago, Joy and I took our kids, uh, one boy, two girls, to Legoland for a day of fun. And uh, for those of you that have been, you'll know there's a rope drop around about 10 o'clock in the morning, and uh, there's like a mass of humanity, this huge crowd waiting to run in and swarm into the park at 10 a.m. And so we're there with our kids, and it's a bit vulnerable, like you've got people everywhere. And so Joyce says, like, don't take your eyes off the kids. Like, watch the kids. I'm like, I can do that. I'm a great watcher. Well, um, while we're waiting in this huge crowd of people, one of our kids starts crying, and I turn to attend to them. When I turn back, one of our kids is gone, and there is no sign of them anywhere. And we start screaming their name, uh, at which point, the rope drop happens, and thousands of people start swarming into the park, and we cannot see one of our children anywhere. And Joy and I are like, what are we going to do? One of us goes into the park, one of us goes towards the exit, and for the next 30 minutes of our lives, we have never looked for anything or anyone so hard in all of our lives. Now, I'm glad to say uh, there was a happy ending. Uh, we found our child after 30 minutes of looking. But what's interesting is, like, that was eight years ago, eight years later, Joy and I still have arguments about that. We still, we still fight. Whose fault was it on that fateful day that Joy lost one of our kids at Legoland? Um, <laughs> Here's, here's the reason I tell that story. Like, it wasn't always that way. Like, we hear that story and think, oh, how horrible, you lost a child. It, it wasn't always that way. Like, how, did, how did it change? Like, wh- why do we care about children so much in our culture? This wasn't some obscure part of the world Jesus grew up in, this was the Roman Empire that dominated most of human civilization. Here's what changed there was a little group of people who said things like infanticide is wrong. Children matter. Little girls are as valuable as little boys. And they said, we believe this because of the teachings of a rabbi called Jesus, who said things like this, let the little children come to me. And eventually this value won the day and history got changed as a result. There was an inclusivity of spirit that marked the ministry of Jesus. It's what still draws people to him today. And it marked his interactions with women. And this is where we get to Luke chapter 8. Whole load of guys following Jesus around, and a load of women as well. And we read it and think, oh, Luke is just setting the scene. It was so much more than that. Uh, Here's one of the reasons. Uh, In the ancient world, women did not travel with men. If you were respectable as a woman, your job was basically to remain indoors. Uh, So much so, in the Greco-Roman world, we have the copies of plays, theater productions, And the women in those plays are almost always slaves or women from the sex industry because those plays almost always happen outdoors. That's why at different points in history it's been deemed like more attractive at times to have a a fairer complexion rather than the tan complexion. Because if you have a tan complexion, it tells other people in your culture what kind of woman you are. And yet Jesus forms a traveling community and he invites into it men and women who travel and learn and love God and love each other and do ministry together. More than that, women are paying the bills. Women are paying the bills. And Jesus did not consider this threatening or demeaning, he welcomed it. I don't think we have any realization just how countercultural this really was. Right, let's go to Luke 10 uh, for a moment. Jesus is with Mary and Martha. Martha is in the kitchen doing the cooking and the cleaning. Uh, Mary, we're told, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And Martha has a problem with this. She's like, Jesus, tell her to help me. And Jesus says, no. Mary has chosen what is better. Now, uh, usually when this passage is preached on, the application is all about contemplative spirituality. You know, Martha had this busy activist temperament, like Mary was chilled out at the feet of Jesus. And likewise, we should all be chilled out at the feet of Jesus. Now, I do think there is some application there. I think you can apply it that way. But that's not the first way people in the ancient world would have understood it. And here's the reason. The phrase to sit at someone's feet was like a technical phrase. It's only used one other time in the whole of the New Testament, again by Luke, in his second volume, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, says this, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. What's he doing here? He's saying, here's this amazing guy I learned from. A kind of modern-day equivalent would be saying, like, I went to Oxford or Cambridge. To sit at someone's feet means to be like a follower or a learner, a disciple of that person. In other words, here's what's going on in Luke 10. Martha is doing what the culture values in women, she cleans the house, she cooks the food. Mary is doing what the culture values in men, she becomes a disciple and learns and studies and grows. And Jesus says Martha got it wrong and Mary got it right. And this kind of put the culture on tilt. Speaking of cultural expectations, uh, the highest expectation on a woman at this point in history was to have babies. You're a lady. 2,000 years ago, your main job, have kids. In fact, in ancient Sparta, uh, the only women that ever got their names put on gravestones were women who died in childbirth. It was the culture's way of saying, "Lady, you're doing what you're supposed to do. Like have new life." You, you get like a taste of this in, in Luke's gospel. Uh, we covered this uh, a year or so ago, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, Jesus is saying some amazing stuff about the kingdom of God, and a woman calls out to him, and she says this. Uh, Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. And Jesus replies, Oh, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Sounds like a slightly snarky response from Jesus. It sounds like this lady's being really nice, like, Jesus, your mum, she's amazing. And she's like, no, no, she needs to do what she's told. It's what it sounds like. What's going on here? Well, think of the culture. In a culture where a woman's highest call is to have babies, well, the woman who gave birth to Jesus wow like she's truly blessed by god because listen to how amazing he is and jesus hears this and he's like okay this is time for a teaching moment he's like no 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 a woman's highest call is not to reproduce life like if you are a woman you are not defined by whether or not you have children in fact more than that you are not even defined by how well or how badly your children turn out in the future speaking as a parent this is wonderful news Jesus is basically saying this: a woman's highest call, same as for a man. Remember, women and men together, we share a common humanity. Our highest calling is the glorious adventure of coming to know and to do the will of God, in whose image we have been made. There's an old, um, uh, very bad joke. I'm not expecting you to laugh at this, and that's, that's deliberate. Um, it's set in America, and uh, the the joke goes: uh, There's a wealthy chief executive. And he's on a day out with his wife in the car uh, and they stop at a gas station to fill it with fuel Um, are you laughing at my accent um um, well he's stopping at a gas station to fill up with fuel and uh, obviously in america you get gas station attendants who come and fill the car with fuel so the the husband goes in uh, to pay a petrol pump attendant is filling the car with fuel and while he's paying he notices his wife talking with the petrol pump attendant he thinks this is curious gets back out to the car, off they drive, and they get chatting. And it turns out that his wife used to know the petrol pump attendant. More than that, they used to be an item. They used to date. Uh, At which point, the wealthy chief executive breaks into a a broad smile and he says, oh, darling, I bet I can guess what you're thinking right now. Uh, I bet you're so glad and relieved that you married me, the wealthy chief executive, rather than him, the petrol pump attendant. And his wife thinks for a moment and she says, oh, no, darling, oh, no. Uh, I was thinking if I'd married him, he would be the wealthy chief executive and you would be the petrol pump attendant. He got uh, you are more gracious than the Milan crowd last week uh, with that joke. Now, uh, here's the point, the reason I tell that joke is there are often gender specific jokes in our culture. You notice that? And if you listen to that joke, it's really interesting with regards to identity and women. If you think about that joke, how come she couldn't be the chief executive? Or better yet, how come both of them couldn't just live with a sense that their inherent value and worth does not come from what they do with their lives and how much they earn or accomplish. And rather than finding our identity in a job or a relationship, why can't we find our identity as a follower of Jesus and an image bearer of God? Wouldn't that make a difference? Jesus gives women a new dignity, a new identity. Jesus gives women a new purpose. It is a striking thing that, not just in Luke's Gospel, but in all of the Gospels, after the most important event in human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is women who follow Jesus to the cross, while the men were afraid and ran away. Likewise, in all four Gospels, the first people Jesus appears to are women. And therefore, the first people Jesus says, go and tell people I'm risen from the dead, are women. Now, this is a loaded command. Remember, Jerusalem has just killed Jesus. Jerusalem wants Jesus dead. And so to go and spread the message that he's alive is a very dangerous mission. And Jesus gives it to women. Uh, more than that, in the ancient world, I'm sure many of you know this, a woman's testimony was not considered legally valid or binding. Uh, that's why if you were inventing the story of the resurrection, you, wouldn't, you would never include this. That's one of the reasons I think it's true. Uh, There was a Roman historian called Celsus who wanted to discredit the Christian faith. And he said this, the resurrection story rests on tales of hysterical females. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says something similar. He says, let not the testimony of women be admitted. Uh, We see this played out in the Gospel of Luke. The women have met the resurrected Jesus. They go and tell the guys. And we're told this, the men did not believe the women, because their words seem like nonsense to them. The men who were cowards, who ran away, did not believe the women. I mean, can you imagine the frustration of the women? Like, oh, this changes everything. And then Jesus appears to the men. Ta-da! Like, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall the next time the women met the men? Wouldn't that be a great moment in human history? Like, guys, what do we tell you? Uh, More than that, can you imagine what it did to the sense of dignity and purpose and honor of these women that God chose them to be the first people on earth to share the most important message in all of human history in a culture that thought so little of them. Interestingly, some historians have postured that because Roman gods were male and female, and the God of the Bible is almost exclusively referred to as male, and there are reasons for that, it's not time to go into that today, But the theory goes that if you've got male and female gods, those religions will be more ennobling to women. The historical reality is that women flocked to this movement of Jesus. There's a historian called uh, Robin Fox who writes about this. Archaeological evidence indicates women were way more prevalent in the early church than men. And more than that, when you look at the scriptures, if you look at the house churches that Paul lists in the New Testament, around about half of them are headed by women. That is staggering for the culture of the day. Jesus is why an aged woman named Apollonia, when she was taken by the Romans and physically battered, had her jaws beaten and her teeth broken, and she was offered her freedom. If only she would renounce this person called Jesus. Instead, she willingly chose to walk into the fire and be consumed. And she was one of countless others. That's why uh, images of Apollonia often include uh, teeth in her image because she was tortured to renounce Jesus, and she would not. When it comes to giving dignity to women, there has never been anyone like Jesus. I think at this point in the talk, it's worth acknowledging that 2,000 years later, our world has not caught up to Jesus. I think it's worth acknowledging that the church has not caught up to Jesus. I wanna read a few stats from our world today, and just to say if anybody is affected by any of this, we're really happy to chat and pray with you now you can email pastoral support at christchurchlondon.org, and we'd love to talk with you to work through some of what you may have experienced. Uh, but there's going to be some sources coming up with these stats. I found a recent article that said right now there are 142.6 million women who should be alive today who are currently missing. 142.6 million. And we have no idea where they are because they are deemed to be the wrong gender. In India today, this is seen as such a problem that there is now a 63 million deficit of women, 63 million more men than women, so much so that ultrasounds that determine the sex of a baby are now illegal in the country. You can get an ultrasound, but not one that determines the gender. And across India right now, there are over 20,000 illegal ultrasound clinics where people can illegally find out, oh, I'm having a girl, let's get rid, shall we? Globally, right now, 2.4 billion women do not have the same legal rights as men. 178, i mean, it's just staggering, different countries maintain legal barriers which prevent the economic advancement of women. This is according to the World Bank. Globally, right now, about one third of all women who've been in a relationship have experienced physical or sexual violence committed against them, on average, a woman or girl is killed by someone in their own family every 11 minutes. Millions of girls are forced into child marriage every year. 250 million plus child brides, age 15 or younger. At the current rate of progress, it will take 286 years to remove all discriminatory laws against women around the world. I mean, do you not read this stuff and think, oh, goodness, doesn't our world need Jesus? And let us not think that here in the UK or here in London, we're so removed from all of this. I mean, just to pick one area, and I could pick many, I don't think we really have any idea of the impact of the cultural standards of beauty on women. Eating disorders in our culture outnumber those in women to men by somewhere between three and ten to one. One article in the Evening Standard uh, recently stated eating disorders are now being diagnosed in girls as young as six years old. A six-year-old girl who looks in the mirror and thinks what she sees is not enough. What if every girl, every woman saw themselves as Jesus saw them? Some of you will have heard of an author called Dorothy Sayers. She was a brilliant writer, one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. In one of her writings, she talks about, why did I follow Jesus? And here's what she says. She says, perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There has never been another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them either as the women God help us or the ladies God bless them. Who rebuked without demeaning, who praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously. Who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female. Who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. Who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. It It is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross which brings us very briefly to application. What does this mean for us? I just wanna throw out a couple of questions and I don't wanna make this moment unnecessarily heavy, but just something for you to ponder. I'm talking to men and women here, anyone here who's fallen into the trap of not viewing others with the dignity and love that Jesus gives. Anyone here guilty of being patronizing or demeaning? Anyone make crude jokes? subtle put downs anyone guilty of not viewing the opposite sex as having inherent value and worth and being made in god's image anyone guilty of viewing others as nothing more than objects for the gratification of our own desires anybody looking at things online that you should not anyone fallen into the trap of rating others by the standards of our culture And if you don't know if this is you or not, let me just give you one example. It happens on Tinder with every single swipe. You're good enough, you're not. You match up, you don't. If anyone here knows you've done that, you need to repent. And just to be clear, when I use the word repent, there's a whole load of emotional baggage that goes with that word. Like often we think, oh, if I just feel bad enough about all the mistakes I've made and beat myself up, then I'll pay penance and God will forgive me. That's not repentance. Repentance means I'm making a decision today to go in an opposite direction and live differently. I will follow the way of Jesus. You know you need to make that decision today, make it, and make it with all your heart. Or more personally, is there anyone here and you know your identity is based around what society thinks you should be Or the emotions, how you feel about yourself in here, rather than how Jesus sees you and values you and the unique calling and dignity he places on your life. Perhaps there are some here and you carry the scars of what people have said to you or what people have done to you. The limitations people may have placed on you, the hurt people have caused. And like so many in the Gospels, you need an encounter with Jesus and he is here right now you bear the image of god and a world for which jesus died is waiting for the gift that god has uniquely placed on you and thirdly and finally we are called to build a different kind of kingdom a different kind of community where the old dividing lines are broken down jew gentile slave free men women old young so now we can live and love and serve as brothers and sisters like a family this is what we're to build let's do something different here can i ask us to stand and can i invite the band out we're going to sing a closing song and um just before we do i just want to just invite the holy spirit to come that each of us may in our own way just meet Jesus right now. And if you know in this moment you need to repent, the moment you make that decision, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven, and you can just bask in his amazing grace. He loves you so much. And if you know that you have hurt from the past, I'm just going to pray in this moment you just know how much Jesus loves you and the calling that he has placed on your life. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit. We stand in your presence right now. And we ask, would you come and meet with us? Where decisions need to be made about walking in a different direction, give us the strength and grace to follow through with that. And may in this moment right now, We know the grace and love of the Father because of the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sins. And I pray for anyone here who carries hurt from the past. In this moment, help us to meet Jesus. Show us Jesus, Holy Spirit. As we worship now, may we experience the love of the Father for us. Heal wounds, renew calling, redeem identities. As we worship you now, Lord Jesus. Break through our barriers and fill us with your spirit again, I pray. We worship you now. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one in all of history, in all of our world, there is no one like Jesus. And so we finish our time now by looking to you and worshiping you and giving you glory. Meet us in this moment, I pray. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.